Greetings and welcome to episode number 18 of Unrelated Things. This is the place where I talk about things that I like or stories that I've seen lately that interest or irritate me. You can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net or follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. If you want to hear more Unrelated Things, consider making a donation or using an affiliate link on our site to make a contribution, or leave a review of Unrelated Things on iTunes. On to the quotation and qualification. Top pick. And my top pick for episode number 18 is the TV show The 100. And here's uh, a bit of background on The 100 from a story in AtlanticMolly.wordpress.com by Molly Freeman. Based on the novel of the same name by Cass Morgan, The 100 takes place nearly a century after a nuclear war wiped out most of life on Earth and left it a radiation-soaked wasteland. The survivors fled the planet and sustained the human race aboard a space station called the Ark. However, when it becomes apparent the Ark cannot support life for much longer, the Council decides to send 100 young offenders, since adult offenders are all executed, to the ground in order to ascertain whether Earth is habitable again. The show follows the 100 as they try to make camp and survive on Earth, despite antagonistic neighbors, which they call grounders, as well as those left behind on the Ark, who must deal with their own problems as they monitor the 100 and the testy political situation of the space station. So uh, this program is on the CW network. I talked about it briefly in a previous episode when I started watching it. Um, It is run by some of the people who ran the program Eureka. And it's the the best new program um, of the latest season that I've been watching on a regular basis. There are certainly other programs. There may be something somewhere out there as good. There's nothing that I've watched that has been as good as The 100. Uh, The 100 has a a great division of storyline with the individuals who went down to the earth to test it for possible rehabilitation and the individuals who remained back on the space station known as the Ark, and the crisis that's facing that space station um, really inputs a a lot of uh, drama into the storylines that are going on up on the space station. The 
space station side of the storyline and the program really puts me in the mind of uh, Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica, the uh, reboot that was very popular on sci-fi. It really has that kind of gritty space feel, and you you can just feel the the tension that is going on as they debate how to survive with dwindling resources. The 100 down on the ground have other challenges to deal with, um, inhabiting the Earth after uh, about 100 years of not living on the Earth, and with the belief that no human being survived the nuclear wars that struck the Earth, um, the 100 go back down and deal with a changed landscapes, uh, changed wildlife, and survivors of those nuclear wars that now are kind of uh, living in the forest, living living off the land, and trying to survive. So has has a lot of really great drama, um, a lot of good interpersonal drama between the members of the 100 who went down to Earth. Um, they are constantly battling with their, their different uh, goals for survival. The, the Earthbound side of the story kind of puts me in mind of Lord of the Flies type situation where there's kind of a struggle for, for domination and leadership in the group. So, a really, really good storyline. Um, you know, it, it really focuses on the drama and on the situations that the individuals find themselves in. Um, unlike a lot of the programming on the CW, it doesn't go too heavy on the love story, though it does have some elements of that as well. I, uh, the 100 wrapped up its first season, so its first full season has been shown and they are shooting the second season, I highly recommend that you check out the TV program, The 100. Because TV is so good. Another thing that is so good, at least in my opinion, yours may differ, is potato salad. Uh, like The 100 season has wrapped up, something else has wrapped up recently, is the famous Kickstarter campaign to fund the creation of a bowl of potato salad. If you haven't heard about this, um, you have different news sources than I do because this was all over the news sources that I tend to follow. Uh, a gentleman, let's see, uh, yes, Zach Danger Brown posted a Kickstarter campaign to create a bowl of potato salad and his goal was to raise $10 for that. He had various different stretch goals included. If he earned $35, he would he pledged to make four times as much potato salad. At $75, he pledged to have a pizza party and at $250, he pledged to use better mayonnaise from the natural foods section. He had some ambitious goals too. Up front, he did a goal for $1,000. He would do a live stream of the potato salad making. And 
for $1,200, pay someone to film a thank you video for all of my backers. And as a big stretch goal, he had $3,000 and his $3,000 big stretch goal was, my kitchen is too small, I will rent out a party hall and invite the whole internet to the potato salad party. With a little uh, note, only $10 and above will be allowed in the kitchen. So those were his goals. So his big stretch goal was $3,000 and his campaign wrapped up last week and he had 6,911 backers for his Kickstarter campaign with total donations of $55,492. So his Kickstarter campaign to raise funds to create a bowl of potato salad earned $55,492. And Kickstarter certainly gets its cut of that money. Um, but he uh, exceeded his big stretch goal by quite a lot and has outlined his plans for that money. He is funding Potato Stock 2014, which is going to be a concert at the Columbus Commons in Columbus, Ohio. And there certainly will be a festival and potato salad will be involved. On top of that, he plans to donate a portion of the Kickstarter funds to a charity called the Columbus Foundation to support their anti-hunger efforts. And he also plans to take some of that funding and start his own business. So good for you, Zach Danger Brown. You know, outstanding idea for a fun little Kickstarter that went viral and earned you a heck of a lot of money. All right, cool. So this next story gets a little bit complicated, uh, but I'm going to try to wind my way through the details. So when I was young, I grew up in uh, northeastern Massachusetts, and the local supermarket in town was Demula's Supermarket, and we shopped there every week um, when I was young, and it was uh, started by a local businessman. So the employees of what was Demula's and now is called Market Basket have been in high revolt lately due to the leadership of their company changing hands. So let me try to uh, outline the situation for you. And first I will start with a story by Kate Cox from Consumerist.com. A weird situation in New England is getting weirder. Regional grocery store chain Market Basket, which opens, which operates 71 stores in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, is finding itself at the center of a massive controversy with employees, executives, customers, and even local lawmakers all getting involved. The core issue? The board ousted good guy CEO Arthur Demoulas to replace him with perceived money grubber Arthur Demoulas, and the resulting furor has led to strikes, boycotts, and empty shelves. 
confused yet? Don't blame you. Here's what's going on. Arthur T. DeMoulas became the CEO of Market Basket in 2008. He developed a reputation as a leader who genuinely cared about the 25,000 employees who worked for the family-run business, employees for the company, both in the stores and also in the back offices, reportedly found him very likable and were loyal to him and the company. The board of directors replaced Arthur T. DeMoulis with Arthur S. DeMoulis. Now workers at every level have rebelled, and so has the public. As of Friday, as of this writing of this story, workers have vowed not to restock until Arthur T. is reinstated. Store shelves are sitting around empty in most market basket locations while the feud continues. Thousands of protesters have gathered for rallies and demonstrations at market basket stores over the past days, starting with an event at the company's Tewksbury Mass headquarters. Eight senior employees who helped organize the rallies have been fired. Several of them had 40 or more years of service with the company. So huge, huge kudos to the employees for standing up for themselves and standing up for the ousted CEO who was really managing the company extremely well and managing the company to the benefit of the employees extremely well when the company retirement fund was losing tons of its value. Arthur T. DeMoulis took that value right out of the company and put it into that fund. Um, He's supported fair wages and various different other benefits that make the employees, you know, strongly loyal to the company and to the leader. Um, But in his wake, the management that has been brought in, including Arthur S. DeMoulis, Arthur T.'s cousin, um, is looking to change a lot of these policies and really is looking to drive shareholder profits up at the detriment of the employees, and the employees are having none of it. If you uh, check out Twitter, you'll see photos of empty shelves. You'll see empty parking lots. Um, this is a really, you know, grassroots movement on the part of the employees. There is no union at Market Basket, so these employees are taking these actions at their own risk. There's no collective bargaining agreement that they can fall back on as legal support for their actions. They cannot officially go on strike because there is no um, agreement, no uh, labor agreement with the company um, that would allow them to take that action without repercussions. So, uh, again, kudos to to the Market Basket employees. I hope that you're very successful in your actions and in your attempts to restore Arthur T. and his management style. Um, Arthur T. certainly not going away without a fight. He has made an offer to buy the 51% of the company that he does not have any control over. Um, the, the whole background to Demoulis is, is quite messy. Um, 
I'll take you through a little bit of that background. So the original founder um, was named Demoulis, and he had two sons named Mike and George. They inherited the business. They managed that through the 50s and 60s, but George died in the 70s. And during the 70s and 80s, Mike basically stole the company out from George's under from from the control of George's children. So there have been lawsuits um, throughout the 90s, and George's children got 151% of the company, and they are the ones now that Arthur S. is one of George's children, and he is the, the new leader that is taking Market Basket in a very different direction that the employees are unhappy with. So if you want to learn more, it's it's great to see a spontaneous labor movement grow out of employees that are so loyal to a company and so loyal to a CEO due to his actions that they are willing to risk their livelihoods to support what is right. Oh my gosh. Look at that. The CIA joined Twitter a couple months ago and started off with a, uh, a quaint little tweet of, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet, kind of a, a benign little, little tweet from the CIA, and got some benign response as well, but also garnered a bit of harsher response that I I believe is more aligned with what the CIA deserves based on their history. Owen Jones wrote in The Guardian, My parents were among many South Yorkshire families who took in refugees fleeing Augusto Pinochet's Chile in the 1970s. Sylvia was a Chilean woman with two kids. Her husband had been murdered she had been tortured and traumatized. She would end her life by jumping from a Sheffield tower block. Here was just one victim of a junta installed on 11 September 1973 with CIA support after Henry Kissinger declared, quote, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its people. Dissidents had electrodes attached to their genitals. Thousands were killed, including those crammed into Santiago's National Stadium. Among them was Victor Jara, Latin America's answer to Bob Dylan. So that's just one of the many things the CIA has done in its history. And uh, Owen continues, The charge sheet is frighteningly long, the CIA's Phoenix program in Vietnam killed tens of thousands between 1965 and 1972. CIA-backed coups in Brazil, the Dominican Republic, and Bolivia. CIA-backed death squads in Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. The murder of Patrice Lumumba, Congo's first democra democratically elected leader in 1961. The tragic preamble of dec to decades of war and dictatorships that has killed millions. 
Neither can all this be dismissed as the unfortunate acts of a bygone era. The CIA has questions to answer about its involvement in the abortive 2002 coup against Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. And all of our modern interaction with the country of Iran is brought to you as well by CIA coup when the democratically elected leader of Iran was overthrown with CIA support, instituting or, or um, bringing rise to the Shah of Iran, who was uh, murderous in his rule and who led to the revolution that led to the Iranian hostage crisis and led to our you know, terrible relations with Iran to today. Owen continues, given the abject failure of much of the Western media to scrutinize its actions, at least until it's too late, it may believe it can get away with it, but its record of torture, murder, and subverting democratic governments speaks for itself. I'm going to move on now. A story from the HuffingtonPost.com. Drive by some buildings at 5 p.m. and you'll see people streaming out the doors like floodgates have burst open and every employee has finally been set free. It always makes me wonder, what must it be like to work for companies like those? What must it feel like to so badly want to get away from a job that hordes of employees are compelled to make sure they get out the door within seconds of their official quitting time? I've had that kind of job when I was younger, so I know how terrible it feels. And that's why you should never leave work on time. Not because you owe the company more hours and effort, but because you owe yourself to work in a job and for a company where you feel engaged, fulfilled, appreciated, and eager to do the work you love. I think you just nailed it. From Matthew Brown of APNewsArchive.com. U.S. railroads forced to turn over details of their crude oil shipments are asking states to sign agreements not to disclose the information. Some states are refusing, saying the information should be public. Federal officials last month ordered railroads to make the disclosures following a string of fiery tank car accidents in North Dakota, Alabama, Virginia, and Quebec where 47 people died. The information due Friday includes route details, train frequency, and emergency response information for trains hauling 1 million gallons or more of crude. BNSF, Union Pacific, and CSX are seeking agreements that the information won't be publicly shared. They say the information is secure, is, sorry, is security sensitive. Officials in Wisconsin, Montana, Illinois, North Dakota, Idaho, and Washington State have refused to sign, citing open record laws and the need for public awareness. What did you expect? A 65-year-old woman was banned from doing cartwheels during public meetings. Diane Barker recently performed several gymnastic stunts during a Maricopa Association of Government meeting. Although Barker claimed she was simply trying to make a point, county officials were not amused. 
Barker said the performance was designed to highlight the benefits of an active lifestyle to stay fit. The 65-year-old woman maintains an exercise routine and travels by bicycle. If she needs to travel a longer distance, she relies on public transportation. As a self-proclaimed activist, Barker is concerned about air quality and the environment. She is also an outspoken supporter of increased public transportation. As reported by American Now News, Barker was scheduled to discuss these issues during the meeting. However, while she waited her turn, she decided to do a cartwheel. County officials responded with a harsh warning. The 65-year-old woman is now banned from doing cartwheels at all public meetings. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. This next story drives me freaking crazy. Add Yahoo to the list of websites that could give a shit less about your privacy settings, writes Chris Hawk of MacTrast.com. The company has reversed its previously stated position on web browser privacy and will no longer honor any do not track settings in your browser. The Mac Observer notes that Yahoo joins Google and Facebook as companies who still track what you're doing on the web, even if you've set your browsers to do not track. Yahoo says it decided to stop following your do not track wishes because there aren't any real standards governing the setting. The internet search firm says this will have the benefit of giving users a more personalized experience. Translation, we can better target ads aimed at you. Users can now assume that any browsing they do after visiting a Yahoo-owned site will be tracked. While not terribly surprising, this is really um, disappointing to see Yahoo go down the same same track as Google and Facebook and say, we don't care if you want this to be private. You're on our service, and so therefore we reserve the right to ignore your desires and to track everything that you do so we can deliver more ads and more targeted ads at you. You don't have a whole lot of recourse to this. Yahoo and Google and Facebook are going to manage their own services the way they choose. And so your only recourse is to try to avoid using those sites and using those services whenever possible. Second recourse, try to get Congress to enact a law to require internet companies to follow your desires when you set do not tracking settings on your browser. And good luck with that. Are you kidding me? This next story really deserves that. Are you kidding me? This story was written by Jack Curley of uprocks.com. It seems that the people of Marshfield, Massachusetts, don't have the same fond memories of Pac-Man as I do because they banned it and all other coin-operated games 32 years ago. I'm sure they had a good reason for it. I bet Marshfield kids started mimicking the violent behaviors of Pac-Man and started eating ghosts. No, it's even worse. Oh no, please tell me it's not the scourge of mankind, the awful, the dreaded truancy. 
Quote, the games are said to be addictive to youth who will skip school and spend unreasonable sums of money to play them at a quarter and sometimes 50 cents a pop, says Thomas R. Jackson, a retired narcotics agent and the resident who proposed the ban. Further, he says, gambling and drug activity are connected to the video game locations where youth congregate unsupervised. While the good citizens of Marshfield have finally come to a different, uh, a different opinion on video games, the ban on coin-operated video games in Marshfield was overturned, 203 votes to 175. That's right, 175 people in that bustling metropolis still think that coin-operated video games should be banned. It is inane and terrible. It's just bad. And there's a story in Salon.com called I Sold My Body and Nearly My Soul to Abercrombie. And it's a relatively lengthy story uh, about one person's experience in the fashion retail world, if you've ever been in it, um, or really are just interested in what goes on a little bit behind the scenes in some select places, um, you should check it out. Here is the opening. It happened innocently enough. I was at a job fair on the UNC Chapel Hill campus when a man in his late 30s approached me. Hey, you look collegiate and quality, he said to me. You play rugby? You wrestle? Student athlete? He was dressed like an aging actor who had been miscast as a teenager in a hot college comedy. Three too tight t-shirts, one layer to top the next, with each shirt tail exposed. Several shell necklaces, beaded anklets on each ankle, distressed cargo shorts, flip-flops. I'm a recruiter for Abercrombie & Fitch, and we're looking for collegiate quality people who can represent our brand, he explained. You have a bachelor's degree, right? Yeah, I double majored in journalism and history, I said. Oh, it doesn't matter what it's in. It can be in whatever. It just shows your collegiate and quality. Here, he handed me his card. And the story goes on about this individual accepting the job and performing the duties or not performing the duties of that position and what those duties entailed um, is a pretty interesting read if you want to experience one person's view of what life was like in fashion retail. Bored to death. Allison Flood in theguardian.com has this to write about one of her favorite blogs. Smart Bitches Trashy Books is already one of my favorite book blogs, but editor Sarah Wendell has now raced to the top of my list for, well, everything after her amazing spot yesterday. 
quote. So if the text is old and it says arms, the optical character recognition scanner, scanner will see it as anus. OMG, Wendell tweeted. Wendell's is quite the find, people. Here are some of the mind-bogglingly disturbing lines she's dug up. Mrs. Tipton went over to him and put her anus around his neck. From the title Matisse on the Loose, when she spotted me, she flung her anus high in the air. That old-style typefaces can occasionally be a little challenging to read, but apparently are more challenging to optical character recognition software than we would like them to be. And the story wraps up anyway. As one commenter told Wendell, quote, people think OCR is a cheap way to get old books into ebook format, but to do it right means thorough proofreading is needed. Absolutely. You don't want to confuse your arms with your anus. I don't even know where to start. HBO Inc.'s exclusive licensing deal with Amazon Prime by Ryan Reed in RollingStone.com. HBO just became a little less exclusive. The network has finalized a licensing deal with Amazon Prime's instant video streaming service, bringing over classic series like The Sopranos, Deadwood, Six Feet Under, and The Wire to their new streaming home base. The deal also includes movies and miniseries like John Adams' Angels in America and Band of Brothers, along with the early seasons of shows like Boardwalk Empire and True Blood. This is a good deal. A lot of people clamor for HBO programming. This deal doesn't include all the most recent programming, doesn't include Game of Thrones programming, but does include a lot of the popular past series from HBO. It gives individuals who are looking for that for that programming another source for that programming and a source in which you do not need a cable subscription and a subscription to HBO in order to see some of the previous programming from HBO itself. So it's another step forward in more, more programming becoming available online and through your internet connection, um, which is a good thing. I think the there's definitely been a significant shift with um, programming being added into streaming sites and with these streaming players like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu um, getting exclusive rights to programming or having their own uh, or funding their own programming, um, most successfully at Netflix, but done as well at Amazon and at Hulu, um, which get, which you know gets those of us who cut the cord and don't want to pay for cable TV any longer um, more options and more opportunities to watch some good quality programs.
that people watch it and then it's a thing. That's usually how it works. And here's something that you can watch and make a thing. And it involves an actor from my favorite program of all time, Neil Grayston of Eureka. Spooked is the name of the series, and Spooked is the Geek and Sundry Network's first full-length half-hour comedy and follows in the tradition of Felicia Day's previous smart and character-driven digital show, The Guild, says the actress and producer. Quote, this space is a personal passion of mine, and I'm excited for the show to be on Geek and Sundry to set a precedent for many series to come in the future. So... In the TV series, and I don't know if I should even call it a TV series, but in the program, Spooked, a group of un, maybe unlikely, well, I was going to call them misfits, I think I will, unlikely misfits come together and form a group called PIT, the Paranormal Investigation Team, to go out and investigate different paranormal experiences. The pilot episode directed by Richard Martin has a group investigating a poltergeist trying to ruin a gentleman's daughter's upcoming marriage. And throughout the series, the group also runs into possessed sorority girls, alien abductees, and other weirdness. I have watched, I think, three of the shows of Spooked. It is amusing. The characters have potential. Um, having watched only three episodes, there's not a lot of depth built around the characters yet. Uh, it is a series that I could definitely see going somewhere, but not one that I would say right off the bat, you have to watch this. It's amazing. I hope it grows and gets a good following so it can continue and we can see more from these particular characters and watch them get fleshed out and watch them grow as they encounter other experiences. But it is great to see Neil Grayston, who played Fargo on Eureka, played Fargo amazingly well and and went through a, a big transformation from a character who was going to be, at best, a very sidelined kind of a assistant role character to someone who becomes quite a strong main character and leader in that program. So take a look uh, on Geek and Sundry at the program Spooked and see what you think. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. Guess who said this? Quote, some people continue to defend trickle-down theories which assume that economic growth, encouraged by a free market, will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice and inclusiveness in the world. This opinion, which has never been confirmed by the facts, expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. Meanwhile, the excluded are still waiting.
It wasn't Karl Marx, and it wasn't the socialist senator from Vermont, one of my favorites, Bernie Sanders. It was Pope Francis. And while I disagree with him on many issues, I definitely would say best pope ever. Yeah. A story by Kiff Leswing from GigaOm.com. Earlier this year, we heard that Apple was starting to build its own content delivery network instead of relying on third-party CDNs like Akamai and Level 3 to deliver iTunes media content and software updates. That plan has come to fruition sooner than expected, according to CDN expert Dan Rayburn. Trace routes from downloads of OS X now show data coming directly from Apple infrastructure. But that's not all. According to Rayburn sources, this isn't a standard CDN. It's positively massive, with 10 times the capacity currently needed, multiple terabits per second, ready to be deployed. I'm definitely interested to see what Apple's expectations are for using some of this new bandwidth in their content delivery network. I am very hopeful for a revamped Apple TV to come in the near future. Of course, I've been very hopeful for that for over a year now. Um, been looking forward to getting a new Apple TV. Um, I do have to say, you know, I did finally cut the cord, I d and I have found all the entertainment I need, which admittedly is is probably less than average. Um, through Netflix and Amazon Prime and iTunes when necessary, and Hulu as well. Um, there's a ton of programming out there, and it's just uh, little different methods of trying to find some good programming, but most of the programming I'm interested in, I can find ways to obtain it and legal ways to obtain it. I'm not uh, into, you know, looking for programming on, you know, sites where the programming is not authorized. I've done that once or twice for a show that I just couldn't wait for it. But for the most part, it's not the way that I really look for getting my my content. Netflix is the bulk of where I watch um, video programming and has enough to keep me going. I'm currently re-watching the series Sliders. As I spoke of before, I watched the series Leverage, which I'd only seen one or two episodes of when it was on TV. Um, Alias was another program I never watched when it was on TV, but found on Netflix and was was a very good program that I did watch through as well. And with his recent passing, with the recent passing of James Garner, I just, you know, watched the first couple episodes of The Rockford Files again. And while, you know, the settings and the costumes are dated, um, the storylines are still relatively decent. So there's plenty of programming out there for me to 
get to. And here's another story about that programming and another show that will probably add my add to my list of shows to watch. Um, as I already said in this program, and I've said multiple times previously, the TV show Eureka is definitely my favorite TV show of all time. And having been canceled, that cast has kind of dispersed into other projects. Um, Colin Ferguson did a recurring character for a season on the show Haven, which got me into that show, which is, is a pretty good show. Um, uh, one, one of my, my, I don't want, don't know if I want to call it favorite, but definitely I would recommend the show Haven to anybody that likes that kind of mystery sci-fi unexplained, uh, events type of program. Um, it, it is, it is a good show with good characters and good actors, but I digress because uh, this next story is about Colin Ferguson and his next gig after Haven, at least his next recurring gig. If you haven't heard the news, Colin, famous for his starring role as Sheriff Jack Carter on Sci-Fi's Eureka, has been cast as, quote, a strong and disciplined head of a community militia and surrogate father to his young trainees who will do anything to protect his town. Though early descriptions of his character described Trip, his character's name, as the season's villain. Unfortunately, we're not sure how long Trip will be around for. When asked about the possibility of starring on Arrow or its upcoming spinoff, The Flash, Colin said, quote, Well, it's more than easy because the showrunner on The Flash is the showrunner from Eureka. So Jamie has already called me, and he's like, I've got some stuff I want you to do. And I was like, okay, just send it up. I'll come. So I would expect to do it sometime in the next year. And that Jamie is Jamie Paglia, one of the creators of the program, Eureka, creator, writer. Uh, I don't know if he did a lot of show running. They had another show runner on Eureka as well. I believe it was... Bruce Miller, if I'm not mixing him up. Um, and so, good, great, great news that Colin Ferguson will be in another series, will be in, in the series, which actually I didn't even mention the series, did I? Um, he, the series that he has been cast as the character Trip is... Vampire Diaries, um, a show that I've never watched before. Not super into a lot of the vampire um, type programming. Although, if you do, if you do like um, vampires and werewolves and ghosts, um, you could do way worse. And I think I think a lot of shows are way worse than Being Human. And Being Human had a run on sci-fi, but that's the U.S. version of Being Human, which I have seen a few episodes of, but not a whole lot of. Check out the original British version of Being Human. Um, a little bit on the lighter side than the U.S. version, but 
you will see the goings on between a vampire, a werewolf, and a ghost when they cohabitate and try to work through the various issues they have um, with controlling their own desires as the non-humans that they are. Yeah, we got to get some of that. From Marion Berger on BuzzFeed.com, Chris Gunnis, spokesman for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, which is not easy to pronounce, appeared on Al Jazeera Arabic to discuss an Israeli airstrike that killed at least 13 Palestinians at a UN school in the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. Gunnis began to describe the incident and then broke down in sobs live on camera. Gunnis told BuzzFeed from Jerusalem that UNRWA is completely overwhelmed and, quote, at a breaking point, having lost five workers in Gaza in the fighting. But Gunnis said he had no intention of leaving his work at UNRWA. He added, my feelings pale into insignificance compared to the enormity of the tragedy confronting each and every other person in Gaza at this time. It's important to humanize the statistics and to realize that there is a human being with a heart and soul behind each statistic and that the humanity that lies behind these statistics should never be forgotten. At least 1,300 Palestinians, mainly civilians, and over 50 Israelis, mainly soldiers, have died since the fighting between Israel and Hamas militants in Gaza escalated into war on July 8. Gunnis has been a major voice on the refugee situation in Gaza. It's horrid. That is horrid. This next story, not so much, but some people may have reacted as if it was. From Geekology.com, parents are pissed as doll Toys R Us sells has a pecker. Some parents are outraged after finding out the $25 You and Me Mommy Change My Diaper doll that Toys R Us sells has a penis. Apparently, the girl version has a vagina. But parents don't want their kids playing with anatomically correct dolls, or at least feel the doll should come with some sort of heads up. Warning, this doll baby contains a penis. Some parents called the doll inappropriate and unnecessary for kids, while others joked it could be a unique way to conclude a gender reveal party. Some users on Facebook just wish the doll's box came with a warning label. Writer Monica Baer of SheKnows.com, however, doesn't see a problem. Quote, how on earth is it inappropriate for a child to see a naked baby? What about a baby makes a penis or a vulva dirty or sexual? Baer writes, because that's what it sounds like when people say that it's wrong for little girls to see it. The truth is, when a child points out the body part that she doesn't have, all a parent is required to do is call it by its name. 
Sexologist Dr. Logan Levkoff says banning the word penis is a parenting fail, and if we don't have universal names for body parts, it may be hard for children to tell their parents when those body parts hurt. They don't want to talk about it. That's exactly right. They don't want to talk about it. I don't think they're doing their children any great service by not talking about it. Just talk about it. And here is another story about Apple from Cult of Mac by Luke Dormel. A patent published recently describes a video delivery system using tablet computer and detachable microprojectors. The application asserts that future iPads may feature one or two detachable projectors which users would clip onto or otherwise sync with their iOS devices to turn their front rooms, office walls, or even the back of a train seat into a miniature screening room. The patent notes how the iPad is used as a remote control that controls the operation of delivering a video file through the projectors, while the tablet plays the audio portion of the presentation using its built-in speakers. We live in a very different time now. Very different time and a website called Popcorn Time can now stream those videos to your Apple TV. Popcorn Time is a cross-platform movie and TV show streamer that scans torrent sites and then beams them to your computer in real time. It's fast, it's easy, and Hollywood hates it, going so far as to shut down the original program last year. Thanks, however, to wide-scale community support and some secret benefactors, Popcorn Time returned quickly and has only thrived since its original release. In an update a few weeks ago, Popcorn Time added support for Google's Chromecast. Now it supports the Apple TV, too. It currently only works on Windows, but Mac AirPlay support will be supposedly happening in the next couple weeks. Spoiler! Another story from Luke Dormel from cultofmac.com, which is very unrelated, except for since it's on cultofmac.com, it's related to Apple. The Westboro Baptist Church have announced plans to picket Apple again. And this uh, picket has already happened at this point. I saw this story a couple of weeks ago. But their flyer that they put out for their their picketing event um, had some unique language in it. Partly reads, Truly, Steve Jobs was formed in his mother's womb to create these Apple products so that the Westboro Baptist Church can use them today to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, really giving God credit for creating Steve Jobs so that Steve Jobs could create the devices that the Westboro Baptist Church likes to use. However, they go on, Steve Jobs was a rich, proud fool who now inhabits hell. 
God sent Steve Jobs a warning in the form of cancer. It was discovered in time for him to repent and ask the Lord to heal him. But as an idolatrous Buddhist, he sought out other inventions. So all very, very good reasons for the Westboro Baptist Church to picket Apple because of their feelings for Steve Jobs. Of course, if you've heard of or know anything about the Westboro Baptist Church, they don't need any sane reason to picket any event in the world. In fact, any, anywhere that they can get media exposure is the right place for them to come and picket and with their outlandish signs about who God hates. And on their flyer here, they make it quite clear that God hates the media and God hates Apple. Their God has an awful lot of hate, and I'm glad that I don't believe in their God. What the hell is wrong with us? Business Insider reports that Apple will buy Swell. Apple is close to acquiring Swell, a personalized radio and podcast application in a deal worth about $30 million. Based on the news and podcasts you listen to on Swell, the app can then create personalized playlists based on your tastes. Apple will reportedly invite much of Swell's team to join the company. Apple will likely borrow Swell's audio recommendation technology or perhaps even its simple UI centered on swiping left and right for its own podcast app. And the podcast app from Apple could, could use some improvement, definitely. And something else I think could use some improvement for Apple is their iRadio, is that what it's called? Their iRadio service, the recommendations there. If I choose a... a artist and let it play a station, I get a group of songs. And then if I choose another similar artist, I get that same group of songs. You know, if I'm listening to only about 10 songs in either, I don't expect to hear that many repeats. Um, also, if I listen to, you know, a, a station based on the coup today, or even right now, and then I stop, and then I go and listen to a station based on the coup tomorrow, I don't want to hear the same eight songs be the first eight songs that play. I need more variety, and I need better, better choices of what those songs are. I think what it really boils down to is those types of music uh, recommendation services don't really serve my needs very well because I'm not just into a certain style of music. I listen to music for the lyrics primarily, and I need those lyrics to speak to me um, in usually a social or political way that I find interesting um, or that I, I believe in. Um, so it doesn't matter to me so much if it's a rap song or a punk song or a pop song um, or even occasionally a country song. 
it's it's what the lyrics have to say that matter to me. And I don't think these um, recommendation engines are geared very well for that type of music recommendation. You don't understand me. No, you don't understand me. One thing that uh, some people don't understand is why the drivers from Washington, D.C. are getting slighted. And there were a couple stories about this lately, but one of them is based in New Hampshire, a state I used to live in. New Hampshire is assuring residents of the nation's capital that they can purchase alcohol in the state despite a law that suggests otherwise. The New Hampshire Liquor Commission recently told retailers they should accept Washington, D.C. driver's licenses when determining a buyer's age, even though state law does not explicitly include them and instead refers to licenses from, quote, another state or Canada. The issue came up this month when a Concord store clerk refused to sell alcohol to a 25-year-old Washington, D.C. man. It's unclear how many other laws might unintentionally snub Washington residents, but at least one regarding cigarettes and other tobacco products includes the same language as the alcohol law. Other laws, however, specifically mention Washington. For example, one law prohibits gun ownership for those convicted of various crimes in New Hampshire. Quote, any other state, the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, or any territory of possession of the United States. So at least some lawmakers in New Hampshire's history were more careful when determining what IDs would be acceptable and what legal precedents from other states would have impact in the state of New Hampshire. I'm not kidding you. Economic inequality in the United States has been receiving a lot of attention, but it's not merely an issue of the rich getting richer. The typical American household has been getting poorer, too. The inflation-adjusted net worth for the typical household was $87,992 in 2003. Ten years later, it was only $56,335, or a 36% decline, according to a study financed by the Russell Sage Foundation. Those are the figures for a household at the median point in the wealth distribution, the level at which there are an equal number of households whose worth is higher and lower. But during the same period, the net worth of wealthy households increased substantially. The Russell Sage study also examined net worth at the 95th percentile. For households at that level, 95% of the population had less wealth. It found that for this well-to-do slice of the population, household net worth increased 14% over the same 10 years. So let's see, that's a 36% decline for the person in the middle of the pack. At the same time, a 14% increase for those people at the very top. If you've been paying attention to the recent economic situation, that should be no surprise. Oh, hell.
Michigan Sheriff Switches to Black and White Uniforms by Lori Dern of LaughingSquid.com. Sheriff William Fetterspiel of Saginaw County, Michigan, recently switched out the jail's orange uniforms to those with black and white stripes. This decision was made due to concerns about the recent popularity of orange jumpsuits, inspired by the runaway Netflix hit, Orange is the New Black. So, life imitates art, or art imitates life, so life changes its direction. Um, Interesting to see what is, you know, the second or third new program that Netflix Netflix has uh, funded and created is having an impact on the society in this way. Quote, We decided that the black and white stripes would be the best way to go because it signifies jail inmate. And I don't see people out there wanting to wear black and white stripes. When the lines get blurred between the culture outside the jail and the culture within the jail, I have to do something to redefine those boundaries because they've been blurred far too often in public culture. That is really annoying. Kickstarter. So we talked about the Kickstarter potato salad. This isn't a story about Kickstarter, but it's a a story about a site that is similar to Kickstarter. Um called in the headline here, Kickstarter for the Homeless, and a story by Eugene Kim in businessinsider.com. Hand Up, a crowdsourcing platform for homeless people and their basic needs, just closed a seed funding round of $850,000. Some of the biggest tech investors have joined the seed round, including Salesforce's Mark Benioff, SV Angel's Ron Conway, and Reddit's Alexis Ohanian. Poverty is a serious issue in America with approximately 46 million people living below the poverty line and 3.5 million of them homeless. In San Francisco alone, 7,350 people are homeless and 54% of them haven't had a home for one or more years, according to Hand Up. Hand Up's platform aims to solve this problem by connecting technology to individual donors. The process is quite simple. Once you visit its website, you can go through member profiles and donate directly to the person you'd like to help. If you can't find the right person or cause, you can simply donate to the SF Fund and they will send your donation to members with the strongest needs. So I think this is horrible and laudable at the same time. Um... It's horrible because it's tragic that we live in a society that has adopted a economic system that allows people too easily to fall into a category where they're homeless or can't or can't fulfill all of their human needs. Um, through the current economic system. And 
it's laudable because there are people willing to step in and recognize those challenges and failures and opportunities and look for creative ways to resolve them. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. That's one sign. Google wants to define a healthy human with its new baseline genetic study by Matt Smith at Engadget.com. Google's got a big new project, and it's you. Well, not just you, but a genetic and molecular study of humanity that aims to grasp at what a healthy human should be. The baseline project will apparently take in hundreds of different samples, with Google using its information processing talents to expose biomarkers and other patterns. The optimistic result hopefully being faster ways of diagnosing diseases. Google said that data won't be shared with insurance companies, but the shadow of privacy issues hang over pretty much anything the company touches. And that's the challenge. I can see the benefits of understanding the genetic uh, biomarkers um, better and understanding how they're connected with specific diseases and creating a database of those markers to help give you know the medical professionals greater insight and another tool in diagnosing um, an illness and helping to treat it. But I see a lot of risk of creating a baseline of what a quote-unquote normal, healthy human should, should look like genetically and then discriminating against those who don't have those same genetic markers. So a lot of risk and potential risk um, lumped in to potential benefits in this case. And, you know, Google has a lot of processing power that can help speed up the work to do so. But as this story reports, you know, Google's goals are not always aligned with what my goals would be um, with data such as this. So, uh, I think definitely reasonably founded risk or reasonably founded concerns over this project by Google. Very well said. New York City approves apartment building with separate entrance for poor people. It would be difficult to come with a more on-the-nose metaphor for New York City's income inequality problem than the new high-rise apartment building coming to 40 Riverside Boulevard, which will feature separate doors for regular wealthy humans and whatever you call the scum that rents affordable housing. Extel Development Company, the firm behind the new building, announced its intentions to segregate the rich and poor to much outrage last year. 55 of the luxury complex's 219 units would be marked for low-income renters, netting some valuable tax breaks for Extel, with the caveat that the less fortunate tenants would stick to their own 
entrance. I think this is outrageous and never should have been approved. I think if a developer desires the benefits and tax breaks of creating or setting aside a portion of its units to be low-income units, I think that the city should require that the access to the building not be segregated between the rich and the poor. I think it's ridiculous. I think if the developer doesn't want to follow a rule that there's common entrances for all tenants, then the developer should create their building for the rich only and, and lose out on the benefits they may gain by adding in those low-income units. Um, you know, it's, it's outrageous to segregate in that manner. They're not the only building that's done this or the only developer. Another one had this um, to say, quote, no one ever said that the goal was full integration of these populations, said David von Spreckelson, senior vice president at Toll Brothers. Quote, so now you have politicians talking about that, saying how horrible those back doors are. I think it's unfair to expect very high-income homeowners who paid a fortune to live in their building to have to be in the same boat as low-income renters who are very fortunate to live in a new building in a great neighborhood. I think it's unfortunate that these are the type of people who are developing residences in New York City or, in fact, almost anywhere. Unrelated thing. And here is my final unrelated thing of this episode, a story by Matthew Barakat from Associated Press. The U.S. government is rapidly expanding the number of names it accepts for inclusion on its terrorist watch list, with more than 1.5 million added in the last five years, according to numbers divulged by the government in a civil lawsuit. About 99% of the names submitted are accepted, leading to criticism that the government is, quote, wildly loose in its use of the list. I think that those criticisms sound like they're probably well-founded. If the government is adding 1.5 million in the last five years and not taking people off the list in any, any or close to any pace that uh, keeps that list at a reasonable level. I don't know how the government could possibly manage to spy on the 1.5 million. Of course, they're spying on the 350 million plus of us as we go about our business. But the problem with that is they get so much data that they can't pick out the important pieces and can't even look at all the, the information that they're collecting in a reasonable time frame to be able to 
to believe they can do anything um, in, in reaction to the massive amounts of data that they're collecting. Um, if you watch everybody, or if you try to watch everybody, you're not going to see what you're looking for if you're not selective. So a few more details on the numbers. In fiscal 2009, 227,000 names were nominated to the database. In 2010, 250,000 names were nominated. But the most recent year, the numbers are available, 2013, 468,000 names were nominated to the database. And again, as I said, 99% of the names submitted are accepted. So um, I think that the government needs to be a lot more selective about, one, who they consider to be a terrorist, and two, who they, who they list as a high-priority terrorist to pay attention to and to keep their eye on because the risks are really high. Otherwise, they're going to just keep getting themselves bogged down in so much data they won't be able to take any kind of action because they'll miss the signs. It's a sign of the end times. And it has come to the end times for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Unrelated Things. Please check out unrelatedthings.net where you can find more information. And you can also follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. It's Unrelated Things.